Hello, I guess Falchi Chrielerev, good Gaelic song stories. And Pod Chrulochud, Farin Bimisha, dear Jigriamach, Thirst Sul in Skialachin, it cool of Nanaran. Hello and a very warm welcome to Gaelic Song Stories with me, Deirdre Graham. Throughout this podcast series, I will be looking at the stories and themes behind Scottish Gaelic songs. As a Gaelic singer myself, I have a lifelong affinity with the songs and stories that surrounded me growing up on Sky. Located on the west coast of Scotland in the Inner Hebrides, Sky is an island with an abundance of history recorded through its oral tradition. As I delve into the stories, I want to take you on a journey to explore the Scottish Gaeltoch and its Seanachas or lore and highlight the continuing relevance of these songs. I'll be interviewing some wonderfully knowledgeable guests, each of whom have a keen interest and expertise in several different areas, including immigration, superstition and political and land struggles. To start us off on our journey, I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Dal William Stewart, a senior lecturer at Solmorostic, the Gaelic College on Sky. Dal William was educated at the Nicholson Institute, Stornoway, in Magdalene College, Oxford, where he read classics, and in the School of Scottish Studies and the Celtic Department at the University of Edinburgh, where he completed a PhD examining the history, literature and popular culture of the 17th century Scottish Gaeltoch. It was the first ever PhD written in Scottish Gaelic. Since 2006, he has lectured at Solmorostic in Skye, where he teaches the Master of Science in Material Culture and Gaeltoch History, as well as undergraduate degrees in Gaelic popular culture, customs and beliefs. He has just finished two long articles examining and suggesting new ways of thinking about Scottish Gaelic literature and oral tradition from 1640 to 1820. Today, we'll be chatting about the development of Gaelic songs from the 1600s to the 1800s and the main historical events that influenced them. It's a convoluted story which frames the Gaeltoch as a place of change, embracing a new, outward-looking global society. And so, to the podcast. I hope you enjoy. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Thal William Stewart, It's lovely to have you here and thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. More and more and thank Deirdre, it's a pleasure. Uh, now, with a host of impressive credentials to your name, would you mind sharing with us a little bit about yourself, how you became interested in Gaelic literature and how that shaped your career? Uh, oh, goodness me, that's a massive question. Uh, I, well, I, I spent my adolescence in the end of Lewis. I went to the Nicholson Institute there. Uh, and then I, I did my, P, I did classics, and I did my PhD at uh, Edinburgh in the School of Scottish Studies uh, and in the Celtic department there as well. So, I've, you know, I've always been interested in Gaelic. It's, it's uh, in my father's side of the family. I was taught it by my father and on my father's side of the family. Uh, and uh, when my PhD was, I decided to look at Macvai Shiralister, he's a very famous Gaelic poet mm. uh, of the 18th century, 1700s, 
But I thought, first of all, you know, you've got to understand where McVeigh Shiralister is coming from. Absolutely. So in order to do that, I had to sort of go back in time and look at what was happening in the Highlands during the 1600s. So that's essentially before McVeigh Shiralister. And the, the, the PhD sort of turned into this, uh, you know, just examining what the Highlands was like during the during the 1600s. And I think McVeigh Schrauss was mentioned once in the entire PhD. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have any, I didn't have much steering at all. I had lots of encouragement from uh, my supervisors, Willie Gillis and uh, John McInnes. But, uh, you know, I was basically left in my own. And I thought, well, I'd like to get my head, or try to get me inside the head of people in the Highlands in mm-hmm. the 1600s to try to get idea of what they were thinking, what their lives were like, what their perspectives were on the world around them and the world outside. And that meant looking at historical documents. It meant looking at the literature, that is the songs and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the stories that were uh, put out, which were created at that time. And also looking at the Bielarish, looking at the folklore uh, as well. So it's coming at it from these three points. And, uh, you know, what, what came out, to my mind now, was just this, you know, tangled mess you know because it's just impossible (laughs) I was far too young to be doing anything like that and I had no clue but uh, anyway over the years what I was doing during my PhD all the sources I looked at uh, all the notes I took that has been extremely useful to me as I get supposedly older and wiser (laughs) and look back at what I was trying to do then I'm able to make sense of it more nowadays yep I find that very encouraging, actually, because I think when I first approached you um, about doing this interview, I I had the same feeling of there was a certain point I wanted to talk about, and yet I felt that I had to go a lot further back. And you're you're pinpointing the dates that actually really interest me as well, and that is something that ties in beautifully. I'd like to begin our our conversation today by reflecting on some of the songs that I'm drawn to as a performer. Um, I recorded an album last year where the songs varied in their type, for instance, walking songs and contrasted with vernacular praise poetry and love ballads. And their themes were wide ranging, but typical for Gaelic with immigration and love often unrequited and political and land struggles and also superstition. And most of them range from the 16th to the 19th century, and which was a time that was, if I may quote from yourself, <laughs> the William, far from being timelessly traditional, early modern Scottish Gaelic culture was dynamic, endlessly changing and adaptive, the culture of a surprisingly cosmopolitan, increasingly hybrid nation. And with this in mind, I'd like to go some way to understand how such a variety of song types, if I may say types or classifications, coexisted at that time. And what were the main historical events that resulted in such a diverse canon of songs? Wow, that's, <laughs> that's an <laughs> awful lot of things to cover. But uh, we can we can start by saying uh, I. I try to discourage my students from using the word traditional yeah. 
about the world, about that world, the world of the past in the Highlands, because traditional to our mind, it, it sort of throws up this picture of a world where everybody's following the ways of their ancestors mm -hmm. and nothing ever changes it's and people are sort of mired in tradition and static, like you say. Whereas if you look at what's going on, really, you know, it's a time which is accelerating. Mm -hmm. Things are changing, you know, every generation thinks that, you know, what it is, it's, it's getting more modern, yes. if you like, it's moving out of tradition. <laughs> and the other thing which I, I try to, you know, sort of gently nudge my students, I hope, away from is the idea of seeing Gaelic as being this pure tradition, mm -hmm. uh, which again goes back to the, the, the days of our Hori ancestors, uh, again, unchanging and, you know, you're drawing upon the well of this unchanging tradition, which has been ever thus. Yeah, I think both those points are something that I have been guilty of. <laughs> we all have. You <laughs> yes. know, it's, it's something which uh, I think we've been especially brainwashed into mm -hmm. by the Celtic revival. And that takes place in the late 1800s and the early years of the 20th century, yeah. when, you know, this is nationalism taking a hold, the same as nationalism is taking a hold of people across the globe. And the way the sort of the way it's inflected in our society in the Highlands is, you know, okay, we're not modern, we're not really suited for this sort of industrial uh, urban life. But at the same time, we've got something which is infinitely precious, ancient, mm -hmm. unsullied by modernity. And that is nonsense. It's <laughs> absolute nonsense. Uh, you know, our path to modernity, you know, talking as, as Scottish girls, is different from, you know, people in the Lowlands, it's different from people in England, but it's still a path to modernity, which yeah. is recognisable. Yeah, absolutely. I think perhaps before we embark on that journey, it might be nice mm -hmm. to have an overview of the clan chief system and a oh, brief goodness. understanding <laughs> of how before we came into that age where we had the clan chief system, we had the role of the feely with classical poetry, uh, a great connection with Ireland there. If you could explain a bit of that. Yes, yeah. no, you, Deirdre, you will have to keep me on the straight and narrow this <laughs> because I have a habit of wandering off. So do so I. So just stop me, stop me. And if anything becomes unclear, again, take me by the scruff of the neck and just say, look, explain this properly. Not at all. We'll go on this journey. Let's go for it. Let's go, go for it. Right. Clans are notional kin descent groups, if you like. Everybody thinks that they're related to each other or they have some sort of alliance with each other in a clan. That's not necessarily true. But it's uh, it's a sort of it's notional, as I've said. It, it makes people believe and it co creates a cohesive group. Mm -hmm. uh, because people like a feeling of belonging. People need a feeling of belonging. Yes, you need a feeling of belonging. Also, people need land, mm -hmm. and people held land, supposedly anyway, as a result of their ties with other people in the clan, especially with the clan gentry and the clan chief. Many other European societies. Uh, it's common for a large proportion of people to be aristocrats. Britain is rather unusual because most people aren't aristocrats. But if you look in the Highlands uh -huh. and you ask people in the Highlands, you, you know, where you people come from, an awful lot of people say, we are related to the clan chief. Yes. I can trace my family back. <laughs> I am an aristocrat along with, along with everybody else in my family and actually most people in the township as well, you know. <laughs> so that's not unusual in a European 
in European style, you know, in the, the, the German lands, the Spanish-speaking lands. But, in, in, you know, compared to England, that's quite unusual. Uh, so that's a, that's a clan. And uh, as I said, you held your land by virtue of your ties with other people in the clan, with clan gentry, with the clan chief. And that's very important. Uh, the clan bard is somebody, the linchpin, if mm-hmm. you like, of the, the cohesiveness of the clan. The clan is, uh, the clan bard, I should say, uh, traditionally may well have been a member of a learned family or at least a hereditary mm-hmm. family of bards, if you like. It would be passed down mainly from father to son, though we know that women were involved in bardic composition as well, of course. Uh, so the official clan bard uh, main duty was uh, praise, mm-hmm. praise poetry, and lament, particularly of the clan chief. These are times, you know, when a clan chief dies, it's a times of difficulty for the clan when things threaten to break up. It's the job of the clan chief to bring everything back together and sort of rally the clan around the new chief, around the new figure. At the same time taking the opportunity to restate clan virtues. In other words, great in war, but at the same time, you're hospitable and you defend your clan. It's very, very important. Now, you mentioned the, the, the Philian, who are the official yes. clan bards. There are lots of them in Ireland. There aren't so many of them in Scotland. But the Philly was a figure who would have, uh, you know, he'd, he'd have been educated probably at a Bardic College in mm-hmm. Ireland, yeah. spent many years learning a very intricate uh, intricate meters and indeed the language, which was a classical language. It was classical Gaelic. In other words, it was very similar, quite similar to what Irish is today. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily immediately comprehensible to everybody in Scotland. <laughs> it was a Mandarin language and their poetry was chanted rather than song. Oh, really? In other words, it was chanted and, and it, was, it had a harp accompaniment as well. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, it's as I said, it's a, it's a sort of learned poetry mm-hmm. appreciated probably by a fairly small minority rather than, yeah. uh, the, the, you know, the clan as a whole. Beneath the feely, if you like, in terms of status, were Nabarsh, the mm-hmm. bards, and the bards were supposedly, as far as we can make out, they are the people that would actually recite the feely's compositions. Oh, really? Yeah. But they also took the opportunity to do compositions themselves, possibly in more vernacular language. Now, only a few of the major families in uh in scotland could afford to have you know sort of the the, the lamborghini of the, the poetry <laughs> world in other words feely you know they had paying for him to go down Very to uh, to the, the, the college <laughs> and stuff like that so uh it's probably the case that there were a lot more bards in the highland than mm-hmm. there were feelies in in the old days so it's not a case that the the feelies kind of eroded away and they were replaced by bards that might have it's 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 the the it's a very good question how did why did the feelies gradually vanish yes 
And uh, we can see the death blow to the Feelys, as far as we're concerned, is what happens over in Ireland when the Bardic colleges are dispersed mm -hmm. uh, during the 1600s, the early 1600s, particularly in the mid-1600s by Cromwell's troops. Yeah. Uh, but they, some of them cling on right. in the Highlands for a few more years afterwards or as a result of chiefly patronage chiefs, particularly wanting to keep, if you like, a court of poetry going in their lands. At the same time, some of the Feelys, at least, the, the families of the Feelys, I should say, would have got employment in other, uh, other, other jobs, other professions, particularly the ministry. Oh, wow. uh, we can see that happening yeah. in the, the Protestant ministry. Uh, and, uh, you know, that there was always a market for sort of what they call semi Classical verse, you know, it's classical verse with a lot of vernacular Gaelic, that is spoken yes. Gaelic, Norman, normal Gaelic for us today, <laughs> being mixed together. So it was, it was quite ornate poetry, but it was probably more readily comprehensible than the poetry, the pure poetry, if you like, of the feelings. So that would probably be the, the poetry that I'd be more used to rather than the classical poetry. If the classical poetry was chanted mm -hmm. then the kind of the bardic praise songs would be yeah from the bards the kind of i suppose marion and alistair Roy springs to mind at first that would be my number one mm -hmm. go-to for mm -hmm. for praise poetry but i suppose she's an exception being a a female well is she an exception that's the know. thing because we've been talking about the official poets yeah. But we've got a load of unofficial poets uh -huh, as well. In yes. other words, we have, you know, because the, 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 the world of the Gael is absolutely saturated with the spoken word, with the sung yeah. word, with poetry, um, with song, with, you know, even down to proverbs and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pithy expressions and stuff. The word had power. So it's hardly surprising that poetry is we, we see it operating at all levels of society down mm -hmm. to the township. We have township bards. Now, when you talk about Marina Lassaruai, we're talking about traditions of women's poetry, which is extremely interesting. I was saying earlier on that women, especially in the gentry classes, we know that they compose poetry, which is either classical or semi-classical as well. But we also have women as... Um, you know, taking part in, in, in work songs, yeah, walking songs in particular. And we know these go back at least to 1600s, if not before. Before. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's a hard life in the Highlands. And one of the way to, uh, to make your life easier is to sing songs when you're working. There's a whole tradition, very, very strong tradition of working songs in the Highlands. Songs which are rhythmical, uh, songs which, uh, you know, they're fun, they pass the time. Uh, and we see, you know, big, big part of these work songs are songs done by women, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, in particular, we have the walking songs, the milling songs, songs for preparing cloth. These were done by women. Yep. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that Marinian Alsaruai is drawing on these traditions. Yeah. She is also drawing on perhaps the most important tradition of women's poetry, which is ritual lament, yes. the keeners, the yep. weepers. After death, it was older women in the township. Certain older women would have, if you like, the job to keen, to weep, to bewail the dead, and also, if you like, to help them from one world into another. 
there's very little, as you can imagine, of that poetry surviving today. Nevertheless, we can hear echoes of it in the laments and indeed the praise poems of the great women poem, poets during this period, so Manuel Asaruai, Sheila Snekepi, mm -hmm. obviously, as well. Yeah. Uh, so, Mairat Nian Lachlein from Mull, too, is somebody who is, you know, famous and somebody who, who tradition explicitly states was a keener, a weeping woman. So, we, we have all these, I, I don't like the word subliterary because it gives us the wrong impression. You know, this is art, it was very intricate, very, very, um, very sophisticated art, but we have all these different strands weaving yes. together. And all at the same time, because I, I suppose something that I've um, wondered about and, and not got my head around is to date all of these songs, but actually they existed all at the same time. It was, like you say, community and the spoken word so so powerful and at every level of society. Of course, it must have been this rich tapestry just surrounding everyone. Yeah, yeah. Everybody would be brought up yeah. in this. And at every aspect of your life, whether it's, mm. you know, at work or in the home or at, you know, with the Kayleys and every aspect of the life was touched by poetry and by song. That's right. That's right. And uh, everybody would know poetry and song themselves. Mm -hmm. And everybody would have an opinion as well of what <laughs> counted as good poetry and good song. So I think it's very important to think that to remember that we're not just talking about a society of performers, but also mm -hmm. of highly sophisticated audiences as well. People that have been brought up listening to and absorbing song and poetry around them. That's something that you mention in your book where you're talking about the the audience were as much a part of the performance as the performers and almost like heckling and different versions of songs depending on on the audience or who was performing it or the occasion. Yeah, I, th I think that's, uh, I mean, like, like you, I've, I've done a fair bit of performance in my time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was on the stage uh, and uh, it's... I think, I think it, you know, performing to people makes you hyper aware, especially in the theatre, mm -hmm. of just how much give and take there is, even between you and supposedly a silent audience. That silent yes. audience hugely affects your own performance. Massively, yes. And uh, that's, you know, I, I, I travelled around the Highlands and uh, doing, uh, doing theatre and education for, for many years and uh, performing to five, six, seven-year-olds. It's <laughs> yeah. a, a whole event. different gig. <laughs> it's, it's the best uh, apprenticeship you can possibly have yes. as an actor. I learned so much there about how to keep uh, how to keep the most difficult audience occupied. And a very truthful audience. A very truthful, well, exactly, like a Cayley House audience mm -hmm. would have been. They, they, they wouldn't have uh, stood in ceremony if they thought that they knew a better version of the song <laughs> or if they thought you had made a mistake, perhaps, in one or two of your your uh, your you know your lines or uh, indeed if you had a, a, an opinion on who made the song and they had a different opinion on who made the song i think it's you know when we're talking about we're talking about you know sort of web of song of of the spoken word of the song word in the highlands we also have to think of a web of opinions about the songs <laughs> being voiced vociferously at all levels 
So, uh, you know, whether we're talking about the Cayley House, maybe, or even the, um, you know, the tables of the gentry, the singing a song or telling a story or reciting a proverb or an anecdote, that would have been an occasion for conversation mm-hmm. and debate and possibly disputation as mm-hmm. well. That's, you know, it's a, it's a give and take. That's the exciting thing about it. It's quite refreshing because I think sometimes nowadays as a performer, you do feel like you need to have the correct interpretation of the song. And yet actually to hear that really opens up your mind and frees you as a performer to know that it's one version and it's one representation of that poetry. So it's actually a lovely idea to think that there were different versions and I suppose that we don't have them all today what we what we have and what exists now in our now written literature or recorded literature is not nearly as diverse potentially as what was around at the time yeah I think I think that's very very true uh, and imagining, I, I mean, again, that takes us back to ideas about tradition, ideas about the, the sort of purity of the tradition. These fossilize the yeah. performances. I mean, if if all you've got as your as your standard of of, of worthiness of song is, <laughs> oh, it was like the Kayoch that sang it in Tober and Ulchish, who had no teeth, <laughs> and you know, and, and could barely hold a note. And was 95 yeah. you know that's no way to keep a culture alive mm-hmm. and move it into the future and mm-hmm. again we have to remember when we're listening to Tober and Dolfish as I've said before it's a wonderful database okay. but it's sung by people who's in many cases whose glory days were you know 40 or 50 years previously, previously. and we have to remember that you know uh, the danger of seeing Gaelic culture as a culture of old people rather mm-hmm. than as being a youth culture is something that we've always got to bear in mind. Absolutely. And I think at this time, it's really interesting at the moment to see the way that Gaelic song is being interpreted and there are so many different um, fusions happening at the moment. And perhaps maybe we would think that this is quite a modern thing, but really... You're shaking your head not at all because, of course, (laughs) this period that we're talking about... Can you tell us a bit more about how international influences really moulded these songs? Well, I was, I was laughing and thinking about Marin Janals uh-huh. And for her, you know, she's talking about, what was she talking I mean, she ter- certainly talks about sort of um, stringed instruments, you know, guitars or loops mm-hmm. or whatever, um, organs and stuff going on. Look at the earliest recordings, the earliest manuscript uh, music, uh, music manuscripts of Gaelic song. They're, it's all set for the fiddle and for the piano and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's always been that way. Uh, and I think that, you know, we can fetishize the, the unaccompanied voice perhaps too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that? What, oh, Dear, what what were you asking Are, me there? It's gone, the, it's I suppose that, that fusion existed in uh, the 1600s, yeah, of that course. We had these international yes. influences. Yes, that's that's it. So, you know, if you're looking at if you're looking at Scottish Gaelic literature from at the very latest, the late 1600s onwards, 1670s, 1680s onwards. We're looking at a, lang- at, a, at a language and at a culture and at a, a music that is increasingly coming under the influence of 
outside, and especially that means Lowland Scots and English, and to some extent Irish. I've learnt a lot from my colleague Hugh Cheap here at Solmorostig, who's re-envisaged the great Scottish bagpipe as a Baroque instrument. Oh, you know, wow, so it's yeah. a European Baroque instrument. Yeah. Uh, very few bagpipes are actually made in the Highlands, if at all. They all come oh. from the other side of the Highland Line in, in Edinburgh. And the same thing is true when we look at song and culture. Uh, the, the song culture of the Highlands during this, this period. We see, uh, well, I, in my opinion anyway, mm-hmm. we start seeing a lot, of, a lot of songs coming in which don't have a Gaelic rhythm. Uh-huh. They've got an English rhythm. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's Gaelic, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And uh, to my mind, that is proof that Gales are crossing the Highland Line. Mm-hmm. They're listening to songs in Edinburgh or the cattle fairs at Dune or Falkirk or whatever. And they're taking these tunes back with them. Yeah. And they're fitting them out with Gaelic words. And we're starting getting this sort of hybrid literature. The meter of a song totally changes and the structure of them. Yes, yeah, that changes, that changes. And it's, you you know, we're we're talking about, you know, Cayley House, what people want to some extent is something new. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be a market for new stuff. And a lot of that new stuff is going to come from outside. That's not to say that there's a lot of new, new stuff not being made in the Highlands as well. Yeah. Uh, but, but perhaps driven mixed. by, would it be the youth? Kind of a, a youth movement? I, th- I think it's, it's youth. And uh, certainly in the late 1600s, we see social bandits coming in. Social bandits, cattle reavers. And the cattle reavers, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're like the, the gangsters yeah. of the, the late 1600s. And these guys, you know, they want to up their image. In, in front of the, the yeah. you know, the people, because, you know, they depend upon the people for support. So, you know, they start making songs about themselves and other people make songs about them as well. Yeah. Propaganda. And you can see them drawing upon Lowland song, translating Lowland song, often in praise of, you know, the noble Highlander, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Bonnie Highland laddie and whatever. They're taking that imagery, these motifs, and reworking them in Gaelic about themselves. In a kind of, kind of satire songs? Or? No, no, they're, they're being, I mean, there they're, are, satir- they're, yeah, there yeah, are yeah. satirical songs about them. Yeah. But no, these are, these are absolutely straight down the line, romantic, romantic songs. And then over the course of how long that starts to seep in as the... Yeah, as it just, it's, you, see, you see it seeping in very early. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it is... As I said, as we said, it's a dynamic culture. Yeah. So you can see songs leaping from, uh, you know, from district to district and becoming the sort of the hit songs of the day. Uh, we see the idea of fashion coming in around about this period as well, especially yeah. with women. Women get rid of the, the old um, yarasach that they used to wear, the old Highland plaid. Yeah. And they're starting to adopt European fashions at this time as well. So we can see, you know, fashion and clothes, fashions and music, fashions and songs in culture 
in general. Things are getting very, very dynamic. They're fast moving at this period. It is not at all a hermetically sealed culture. And this is long before Culloden. It's long yeah. before the 45. And uh, though the 45 and the Battle of Culloden is a very, very important lynch point yes. in our history, literally in some cases, uh, there, there were changes afoot many, many generations before that. I'd like to bring things back a little bit to the panegyric praise code, a, a term coined by John McInnes. John McInnes. John McInnes. My supervisor, yeah. yes. <laughs> Much missed man. Uh, yeah, his, his great idea was to look at Gaelic poetry as a whole and realise that underlying this poetry is sort of a, a code, a code of praise, a panegyric code in which the ideal chief is portrayed as somebody who is very attractive, somebody who was great at fighting, somebody who is very hospitable to his clan, uh, somebody who presided over an open hall. Food was served, food and drink were served to everybody. Somebody, as I said, who was... Who was uh, he, he wasn't miserly, he was some, somebody who was generous, generous. Yes. And uh, this, uh, the, the, in a way, the, the idea of the panegyric code is it's so useful that you can find it everywhere. And as a result, it almost stops being useful because you see it wherever you look. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> that is something that struck me because I looked a bit at the panegyric praise code when I was in uh, uni and uh, and I always thought of it as in the bardic praise songs. But is this, the motifs that you find tend to be in ballads as well. Would that be the same kind of motifs or, or is it just exclusive to bardic praise poetry you know when you get the they've always got the curly hair and the chalk white teeth mm. and the salmon calves and the generosity and the hospitality can kind of be found in some love songs as well but would that be a separate no not no? at all no you're absolutely right it's what poetry is about yeah poetry is about praise so if you're praising somebody yeah whether you're praising your chief or you're praising your lover or you're praising, uh, you know, I don't know, your, your, your father has been killed in a fishing accident, elements of this panegyric code are going to seep in. It's what people recognise as poetry. It's what people expect. Uh, of course, when poets use it to praise their chief, there's always an element, I think, of counsel in that mm -hmm. too. They're not just praising them sort of, uh, from the outside but there's always an element of advice and almost of haranguing if you <laughs> yes. have the ear to hear it you know they are making recommendations on how the chief Much should be yes, in some cases certainly are well, which definitely. means that we've got to be really careful when we read this stuff ah. and not necessarily think that it's just a description a little, uh -huh. yeah. Well, often, you know, the, the, the clan feuds and battles were some of the most gruesome yeah. battles. And often, perhaps, 
would petty be the right word? I'm not sure. But they seem to have erupted into, into enormous battles over something <laughs> that maybe we could resolve a bit better these days. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think. Uh, I mean, that, that takes us down an entirely new rabbit hole. Yeah. But I think that there are ways of managing feuds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these ways of managing feuds were, if you like, taken away when the Reformation happened and the church mm-hmm. was really, really destroyed across great swathes of the highlands and as a result you know because the authority of the church and indeed the authority of the lordship the isles was no longer there it meant that the feuds erupted and they were very very difficult to tamp down again but uh, no no certainly there's uh, you can you can connect all this this panegyric code with the the idea of council, there's books being written about council in England and how the, the chiefs or the, the king's advisors, how they had to be so careful when they were giving advice to the king, how they had to sort of phrase and frame that advice. And indeed, you know, to wider streams of poetry in Europe, we've got this idea of the, the um, speculum principis, the, the mirror of princes, yeah. uh, where, you know, praise is, is widespread across Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, in poem, poetry, of course it is, and also you know people realise that this praise, you know, quite often there's there's something behind the praise more than just praise itself. So you know, I, I think that you know our next step, and it's not just me saying this. Uh, our next step, almost if you like, beyond John McInnes's idea of the panegyric code, is first of all to see how the panegyric code might have been changing. Uh-huh from generation to generation, maybe different themes, different motifs come up. One big one is that the idea of the chief as being defender of his clan, well, that disappears during the 1700s because uh, the chief, you know, it's no longer a transaction between chief and his people. It's just, you know, the chief is the landlord and the landlord is all powerful. That must have been a really difficult... a difficult job to hold as the bard at that point to try and pacify the people perhaps or to keep them on side with a chief who had abandoned and and left his people yeah absolutely or try and drag the chief back to you know back from the 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 flesh pots and the gambling houses of edinburgh or london and yeah. start being what they they saw as being a proper chief again there's this contractual element between the people and the chief, which is, if you like, understood in the panegyric code. You know, we praise you and you give us protection and, uh, you know, salary in yeah. return. And, uh, you know, the chiefs are no longer comfortable with that contractual element. You know, they're moving out of the orbit of Gallic culture. They're becoming anglicised. Mm-hmm. Um, they're now passing their lives in a British aristocratic framework at least the most powerful ones are so there's no longer a place as far as they're concerned with sort of annoying bards telling them what to do (laughs) a job i wouldn't want no no and it becomes increasingly (laughs) difficult we can see the poor old bards becoming silenced uh you know marion alson who we've talked about earlier from sky she was exiled uh and uh the class of dowell another Mm -hmm. sky poet mm-hmm. was also exiled because he spoke too freely really so, well, i yeah, never the, knew about well, the poet, the, yeah he, he was because it, well out on more viclodge you know the 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 lament more and more and more yes the the, the 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 castle and vegan castle is now deserted and the chief 
as uh, is now absent. Uh, yeah. yeah, that that earns him effectively an exile, an internal exile. Wow. Uh, you know, the, 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 the poets still have power. Of course they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chief cannot afford to ignore the poet, but they can certainly make efforts to silence them. Wow. It's quite... I don't know, it feels quite sinister, but it's, but it's fascinating, it's intriguing. and mm. um, Yeah, there's a, yeah. an increasingly authoritarian side to yeah. Highland landlords uh, during the 18th century. Now, you know, of course they all, there always was this. We can't, we can't, uh, we can't uh, pretend otherwise. Uh, but I think the, the oppression is more overt Mm-hmm. during the, the, the 1700s, when the chiefs themselves are falling deeper and deeper into debt. I want to step away for a moment from the role of the bard within the clan chief system. And I wonder if we could talk a bit more about the different strands of songs that were that were in existence. Um, the manuscripts that were published and also the role of the, the Cayley House and Beal Arish and how, how all of that intertwined at the same time? Uh, part of the problem with a lot of the Gaelic, the, the, the canon of Gaelic poetry which we have today is not necessarily the sort of poetry which was actually sung most frequently in the Cayley houses. Mm-hmm. The stuff that we have printed tends to be the stuff that was preserved supposedly because it was old, it was traditional to use that word again, and it fitted in with the chiefs and the clan gentry's view of what their ancestors were like. In other words, the praise was a big thing about it. (laughs) But, you know, if we look at what people were actually singing, I suspect that there would have been a lot of what we would call radical poetry, which has only just Mm -hmm. left shadow traces uh, on the on the, the repertoires we have it today, as well as a huge bunch of, you know, body poetry, uh, throwaway poetry songs, which were just, you know, they'd be a hit for a year and then everyone yeah. would move on. You know, th- th- we know there's a lot of that as the Highlands and as Gaelic culture is increasingly absorbed into this commercial British culture, yeah. which is, is focused upon... I guess you'd say it's a culture of broadside ballads. It's a culture of songs sung in the street. You know, girls, especially young girls, were spending a lot of their time in the lowlands. They'd mm-hmm. go there for harvest. They would go there to work in the cities. Yeah. Uh, they would go there to learn English. Uh, they would join the army, perhaps, uh, and, you know, yeah. spend their time down the lowlands or, or further afield there as well. They would hear songs, they would hear stories, they would become fluent in English, and then they would try, when they returned, they would try to remake that culture in Gaelic. The days of the clans became old-fashioned. 
Yeah. And the, the world of work songs with women spending their days engaged in back-breaking work, milling corn, grinding corn, mm -hmm. milling cloth, and so on. It looked old-fashioned, and it was dirty, and it was unsophisticated, and they turned their back on it. Yeah. They moved on. Nobody wanted to sing walking songs. People wanted love songs. They wanted the sort of songs that, you know, people sung, they heard people sing in the lowlands, songs which, which talked to their own, their own life, uh, which was a life which was in their eyes becoming modern, in the clothes they wore, in the instruments which they played, especially the fiddle, yeah. in the sort of life which they had, in their occupations, which were waged occupations, you know, they would work for money. Yeah, such a difference than, there. Yeah, rather than just being subsistence peasants working on the mm -hmm. land. It's a huge difference. And people, as I said, especially young people, and there are a lot of them in the mm -hmm. Highlands in 1750s, 1760s onwards. There's a population explosion, the same as there is, in the rest of Britain and the rest of Western Europe during this period. So Gaelic suddenly becomes this young person's culture. You know, it's no longer a culture of old people. Well, it is a culture of old people, but it's also <laughs> especially a culture of young people. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff, I think, though I don't know enough about it, I suspect that a lot of the stuff which we think of as being traditional Gaelic culture mm -hmm. is really a result of this huge, big upsurge in popular youth culture from the 1750s, 1760s onwards. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see oh, the reaction? it would be so exciting. Yeah. amazing. Yeah, and I think people were optimistic as well. People at that time thought, right, I can be Gaelic, but I can also be modern. It's you know, kind of dual identity. Yeah, we can remake. And everybody was thinking, you know, everybody had these visions, these ideas that... You know, we've seen it happen in, in Lancashire. We've seen it happen in Lanarkshire. Why mm -hmm. can't it happen in Sutherland? Why can't it happen in Argyll? People, factories being set up, people making money, towns being, towns being developed, you know, modernising. Yeah. Of, and, and, you know, us staying here and making our life in a Gaelic-speaking modern highlands. But, of course, all that falls to pieces. Yeah. Uh, you know, partially it was broken on the land, the environment, and partially because there was more money to be made in, from sheep yeah. than there were from people. And also as uh, using the, the highlands as a reservoir of, of fighting men in the British yeah. Empire. But while it lasted, it would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> it just it didn't last too long. That's the trouble. Uh, and that's when you that's when you get the Porsche Beale, I think, anyway. I, I have a feeling that's when the Porsche Beale is developed to its full. So this full, blew yeah. my mind. I love this idea. Oh, Can you explain it a bit more with the idea of Porsche Beale being this youth culture and this yeah, it's, modern it's, day? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, music, it's music done. Uh, supposedly, when you don't have a fiddle to dance to, mm. somebody will make up these rhythmic verses which you can dance to yourself without need of any any musical instrument. But, you know, look at the words. They're bawdy, they're filthy in some yeah. cases. Lots of double entendres. It's, it's culture for young people. Yeah. Now, that, these push should be, it has to be said, they do go back further, but I think they're developed to their fullest extent 
in that second half of the 1700s. You know, Gaelic rap music, yes, that's what it Brilliant. is. Brilliant. It's Gaelic rap music. That's so exciting. For that time, yeah. But you can see, you know, in a way it's difficult because, you know, people are thinking, you know, there's this, the, the old stuff, the old clan poetry, the Oceanic ballads, you know, mm -hmm. heroic ballads, which used to be sung, even the bagpipe music itself, people are connecting this with the old days. Mm -hmm. And they think that it's going to disappear, it's going to go over a cliff. And uh, that is one of the reasons why there's so much collection of songs going on during this period. Yeah. People are trying to, desperately to recover what they can of the wreckage of this whole society. Well, we're so thankful for that. Yeah. And what we have in those uh, manuscripts and also from Beale Arish mm -hmm. to, to be at a point where we are today to have not just the one channel of what Absolutely. was in those kind of um, um, gentrified, kind of paid for, um, mm -hmm. a, with an agenda kind of manuscripts, but to have that Bielarish stream coming down as well, that we now can look back and see that tapestry and see all mm. the different elements playing into this beautiful yeah. um, song literature landscape yeah it's, it's incredibly complex and intricate and and variegated the culture as well we have to remember you know you know chiefs still meant something mm -hmm. to the people of the highlands and there's plenty of loyalty to the chiefs uh the chiefs would recruit regiments of course you fight for the british empire so that in a sense it kept the panegyric code that we were talking about earlier alive and it also kept not just the panegyric code but it kept alive the meters of the songs mm -hmm. it kept alive the praise language longer than might have been the case otherwise it didn't just die it was kept alive into the 19th century yeah. and even into our own times as well so we can see you you know again it takes us back it's not a fossilized tradition it's a tradition that people are using perhaps older songs as a template to make something new with as well. Great. Yeah. Well, long may it continue. <laughs> long may it continue. But, you know, I think that we, we've, it's, it's difficult and I still haven't been able to work out how we can properly mm. work out the mixture, the admixture of English and Gaelic culture in the Highlands. Yeah. Not just today, but 100 or 200 years ago. Because people, they sang in Gaelic, but they also sang in English as well, yeah. increasingly. So there's this English repertoire, but it's like dark matter. You know, we don't see it. Nobody's bothered recording it. No. But we know it's there. Uh, it's just there, you know, we, we can sort of feel it and we can hear the echoes of it in Gaelic Poetry and Gaelic song. Do you think people were perhaps aware of the decline of the language at that point? No. No. No, no. Why, why should they? Why they should think they? it's, yeah. a, you know, it's a, it's a bilingual culture. Great, we know English, but we also know Gaelic. Yeah. You know, the two are, there's no, there's no new reason to suppose. I don't think at, at the level of the people themselves. Of mm -hmm. course, learned ministers may have a very different opinion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the ideologues who are trying to force English on the people, 
uh, also were quite convinced that the days of Gaelic were numbered. But I think, you know, at the level of the individual townships, individual communities in the Highlands, I think people, you know, they're Gaelic. And yeah. uh, they, they, you know, they're an example to us today of how it's possible to steer and keep balance between these two cultures and other cultures as well. You know, we have to remember these yeah, people beautiful. are travelling everywhere. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I just, you've taken us on this incredible journey and it's so multifaceted and it's, and it's not a linear journey at all. It's just all, it's all over the place and it's, there's so much food for thought there and I just, I'm so, so appreciative um, of your time and your generosity and sharing your, your knowledge and, uh, and, um, Wisdom. No, there's no wisdom there. No, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just. Oh dear, when people start talk like that. <laughs> no, but it's, well, I I enormously appreciate your time, and I just think that that is so interesting and and really refreshing to think of that time period as a time of excitement and change and and freshness. Mm. Um. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an awful thing to say, but one of the things which we have to do, I think, is to take a step back and think that Gaelic literature isn't special before yeah. we can then take a step forward and see the special things about it. Yeah, and I think, I think that brings us right back to the beginning where, we said, where you said that, you know, it's not, you don't like the word tradition and to think that we are unique from... Other, ex other influences and it's the standalone thing because I think that's quite a, a good lesson for us to learn and not to be, if I'm understanding you correctly, but not to set us apart and to kind of recognise how it all melds together in a much wider sense and then we can make so many more links across the way I think that's it's very true. I think we have to see Gaelic as being a globalised yeah. culture. And it has been so for many years. And uh, it's been a culture with communities across the globe as well. You know, I talk about a global Galosphere. You know, it's like the Anglosphere, except it's a Galosphere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, th this is, th there's been feedback from the globe particularly from the British Empire, for good and for bad, on the Highlands for many, many generations. And, uh, you know, when you look upon our culture, we have to be aware of these different echoes yeah. that we can hear of different cultures and different voices. Well, Rod William, more and more and tangers on every number of call the room. Thank you so much. Um, for chatting with me today. That's been just really phenomenal. Thank you so, so much. My thanks again to the William Stewart for being so generous in navigating us through this exciting period of history. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. If so, please remember to like, share, review and subscribe to this podcast. The music you hear is taken from my album Urunta, which is available through my website 
deirdegraham.com as well as on the usual streaming platforms. Before I go, I'd like to extend my grateful thanks to Creative Scotland for supporting this project. I look forward to sharing more Gaelic song stories with you and I hope that you'll join me the next time. Hwnnanorshin, Janach Glaive.